0: This is RCT number 12, His Only Son, Our Lord. We are in the Roman Catechism of Trent, RCT, page 32 to 34. This is the Creed, Article 2, Part A. God give you his peace, in nomine paci safidi, et spidi santi amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us and save us, you who are all good. Amen. Article 2. And in Jesus Christ, his only son our Lord. Advantages of faith in this article. That wonderful and superabundant are the blessings which flow to the human race from the belief and profession of this article. We learn from these words of St. John. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God, God abideth in him and he in God. 1 John 4:15. And also from the words of Christ the Lord, proclaiming, The Prince of the Apostles blessed for the confession of this truth. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew sixteen seventeen. For this article is the most firm basis of our salvation and redemption. But as the fruit of these admirable blessings is best known by considering the ruin brought on man, by his fall from that most happy state in which God had placed our first parents, let the pastor be particularly careful to make known to the faithful the cause of this common misery and calamity. When Adam had departed from the obedience due to God and had violated the prohibition of every tree of paradise thou shalt eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in what day soever thou shalt eat of it thou shalt die the death, Genesis 216 he fell into the extreme misery of losing the sanctity and righteousness in which he had been placed, and of becoming subject to all those other evils which have been explained more fully by the Holy Council of Trent. Wherefore, the pastor should not omit to remind the faithful that the guilt and punishment of original sin were not confined to Adam, but justly descended from him as from their source and cause to all posterity, See Romans 5:12. The human race having fallen from its elevated dignity, no power of men or angels could raise it from its fallen condition and replace it in its primitive state. To remedy the evil and repair the loss, it became necessary that the Son of God, whose power is infinite, clothed in the weakness of our flesh, should remove the infinite weight of sin and reconcile us to God in his blood. Me again? So two quick things before we look at original sin and its remedy, Jesus Christ. First, if you use Apple, please rate me on iTunes. It really does help promote this podcast to others. Secondly, you might notice that this Roman catechism from the 16th century, it has admonishments to the pastor. We just heard the word the pastor. Who is that? Well, that's the priest. Why is that? That's because this catechism was given to priests to teach their people. It was given to them These priests, essentially by Pope Pius V, other catechisms are for bishops, others for lay people, but this one is for priests, and so sometimes you're going to hear what the pastor is supposed to do. Now notice in this article, it places this discussion on original sin before looking at why Christ is the only Redeemer of the world. I've said for a while in my life that the part of catechesis most ignored after Vatican II is original sin, And that means that if we're going to push against modernism, we really have to explain how seriously original sin has messed up this earth. And we're going to see for the kids listening why this actually leads to optimism, not pessimism. You know, if Catholics today understood the destruction done by Adam and Eve, bringing original sin coming to the world, we would recognize how terrible things are in the world right now, and we would not be working for human progress quite as much. Like Vatican II says as much as the salvation of souls but because most modernists don't take the effects of original sin seriously and many modernists think everyone's going to heaven well that's precisely why most modern modernist catholics work for quote-unquote human progress like we hear in vatican 2 as social justice warriors instead of the salvation of souls of their family i did get some friendly pushback from a phone call switch gears here for a second but it's going to come back around to this title or this topic of salvation a friend called me and she really challenged me on the unconditional versus conditional love of god discussion that i had a few podcasts ago and here's what i said to her towards the end of the conversation i said it really comes down to if god loves the souls in hell why is that that seems like another diversion well here's why if god still loves those who have ultimately rejected him and are in the torments of hell then I guess we can say his love is unconditional. Now, while I do believe many humans have gone to hell, I wasn't sure on how to rule on this since most saints are silent on this. And again, I've never seen a pope or a saint before 1950 use the word unconditional to describe God's love. It's a Protestant description. No Catholic saint would doubt his love is infinite. But I'm wary about that word unconditional because it's, it's an irresponsible word When every covenant of the bible is conditional and because our arrival in heaven is conditional upon our cooperation with grace and as i said this has nothing to do with the word infinite of course god's love is infinite for sinner and non-sinner alike now i was asking god for clarity on this you might be surprised at this i was asking god for clarity on this and then a few weeks later which was just last week i was hanging out with a family on the east coast at their dinner table before eating, parents were getting ready for dinner. I was answering a nine-year-old boy's difficult theological questions at the table. And then out of the blue, he said to me, God loves even the souls in hell. God loves even the souls in hell. Well, especially since I came out of the blue, it hit me. That was the answer I was looking for. So yes, in that sense, God loves everyone unconditionally. In some, in some sense, this is a retraction from earlier. We may even need to consider the words of that one church father. I can't remember his name. Yes, it's only one church father. But he does teach that the flames of hell is the all-consuming love of God, even upon a rebellious soul. Think about that. That's pretty radical. Now, most fathers don't describe hell like that, which is why I was hesitant to go there earlier. But I guess we can conclude like this. Yes, the love of God is infinite and probably unconditional. But I do stick with my earlier assertion that our, our covenantal relationship with God must be conditional. If it were not, everyone would go to heaven and human responsibility would be, a, would be a joke. So we have to admit a lot rides on our cooperation with the Savior, which does bring me back to a few things, again, I want to say about original sin. You know, if you ask my Irish ancestors maybe 200 years ago what they expected from life, It really wouldn't be that much. They had their eyes on heaven. I'm not saying that they avoided sin perfectly by any means, but Catholics 200 years ago really understood this this world was bunk and the entire goal was to get to heaven. And maybe that's why the Irish and and Mexicans and other groups um, who are really Catholic have a really good sense of humor when, when suffering arrives is because they know this isn't our true home. I think they probably understood a lot like what the Baltimore Catechism said, and I realize the Baltimore Catechism is only about 100 years old. The very first lesson in the Baltimore Catechism, and I'm gonna throw some of these pictures from the Baltimore Catechism up on the screen if you're doing the video version. The very first section in the Baltimore Catechism is about the purpose of man's existence. The first question is, why did God make you? And the answer is, to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in heaven. But if you think everyone's going to heaven, like most modern clergy do, then being happy on earth becomes the whole goal of life. You see, when we deny the fact that original sin is transmitted to all of us, and or ignore the fact that we are born without the original justice in which Adam and Eve were created, we expect this world to deliver on wealth and pleasure and fame or power why? Well, because God really wants me happy here and I can be anything I want to be. I'll show on the screen a few pictures from the book because in the same section on the Baltimore Catechism for Children, it then says, many false teachers, this is in the very first section of the Baltimore Catechism, many false teachers will tell the child that he is made in order to find happiness and wealth, pleasure, fame, or power. In reality, most people act as if they were made for these things rather than to love God. Listening to these false teachers and imitating their actions will only lead to unhappiness and the loss of heaven. Now, obviously, there's a lot of Catholics today that will say, oh, no, no, I don't believe wealth, pleasure, fame, or power is really the goal of, of Earth. But if you think everyone's going to heaven, then why not make it the whole goal of Earth? You see, this is why this rejection of universalism universalism, and the acceptance of original sin and the fact that we must reject religious indifferentism, the notion that other religions can save you, are all tied together. We are born in original sin. Baptism is the only thing that washes that away, and we'll include um, baptism by blood and baptism of desire in that. And then only Jesus is the way to the Father. And this is a narrow way. The scripture the Baltimore Catechism then quotes in that very same section is Matthew 7. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are who enter that way, how narrow the gate, and how close the way that leads to life. And few there are who find it, Matthew seven thirteen to 14 You see how they used to teach Catholic kids before Vatican II? Salvation wasn't in the bag, so to speak. There's even an interactive lesson for the kids in that first section of the Baltimore Catechism, where kids are made to make a list on the, on the left— of things that are usually a help to get to heaven, and then on the right, a list of things that are often a hindrance to get to heaven. Do you ever see Catholic kids, except for traditional circles, do this anymore? You made a list on the left of things that are usually a a help on this earth to get you to heaven, and on the right, things that are often a hindrance to getting to heaven. So notice that also, as I say that, Notice that Catholics before Vatican Vatican II were smart enough to make theological distinctions like that word usually and often. Maybe because they knew little legalists would be trying to trip them up. Things that are usually a help to get to heaven and often a hindrance to get to heaven. And let's always remember, hard cases make bad law. Everybody's known that, but everyone loves to live in the loopholes now. So I really do suggest you teach your kids the Baltimore Catechism because... Even if they one day leave the faith, please God know, they'll at least have the deposit of the faith in their intellect, and that way their will will have a much better way to make their way back to Jesus Christ and the Catholic Church than if they just learn this, I'm okay, you're okay gospel of no original sin. People today say it's negative to focus on original sin. We should just talk about Jesus. Well, first of all, it's in the Bible that we learn about original sin, so it comes from divine revelation directly we learn about original sin before we learn of christ the solution secondly this is going to sound like another shift of gears but there's a recent secular psychological study that showed that if you under promise and over over deliver to your brain if you under promise and over deliver to your brain you become happier it's actually a secular psychological study showing that pessimists are happier because if you expect little from life then the little the the little good that comes will surprise and thrill you and i think that's essentially where my irish ancestors were 200 years ago they didn't expect total happiness in, the, in this life so if they got a great ride on a horse or a birthday party or uh had a nice beer or something like that that was um, quite a bonus in this bad night in a bad inn as saint Teresa of avila called it. and she was no stuffy grumpy saint but that's how Teresa of avila describes this earth is a bad night in a bad inn. And when you hear the saints from heaven, often when they appear in private revelations, it's really clear, as St. Paul says, that just the slightest amount of suffering is worth the glory that is going to be revealed in us if we make it to heaven. I also think somewhere in the Baltimore Catechism, it says we can hope to be relatively happy on this earth and supremely happy in the next. We only want to be relatively happy on this earth and supremely happy in the next. Really, there's no guarantee of either of those, of course. But look at those two adverbs, relatively on earth and supremely in heaven. Why can't we be supremely happy on earth? Because of original sin. And when we admit sin has ruined everything, we realize as St. Augustine said that this earth is not our destination, but only our ship to get to the destination, which is heaven. That doesn't mean we want to live like slobs. It doesn't mean we don't want to work on human progress. It doesn't mean that we want to ignore medicine and science and stuff like that. It just we must prioritize the salvation of souls ahead of everything. Also, if every world religion gets you to that destination, then really original sin does not exist since there is no answer to sin in any world religion except the redemption offered by Christ in Catholicism. And that's why we must return to see how original sin, well, it hasn't left us in total depravity like the Calvinists teach, but we are in significant depravity because of what our first parents did. And that darkened our intellect and it weakened our will. And really, that's not all entirely Adam and Eve's fault. Every time I sin, I darken my own intellect and I weaken my own will. So let's get now to the solution. That is the necessity of faith in this article in Jesus Christ, since he is the only new Adam who overturns sin and death and demons. Again, the article we are in today, it's not original sin, but that part of the creed and in Jesus Christ His only Son our Lord. But I took that diversion into how it started us with original sin, one, because it's so minimally caught, taught by Catholics today, and two, because the section on the Roman Catechism of Trent itself starts with original sin, and three... Because the overturning of the teaching of original sin that we see so frequently today, that is deeply tied to the heresy of religious indifferentism. And as I said before, religious indifferentism teaches that all of these other false world religions can get you to heaven. And by the way, if any Catholic in your life claims that, that another world religion can get you to heaven besides Catholicism, just remind them Jesus did not say, I am a way and a truth and a life. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And that's why we just heard in the Catechism that only Jesus could redeem us, no one else. As we just read, the human race, having fallen from its elevated dignity, no power of men or angels could raise it from its falling condition and replace it in its primitive state. To remedy the evil and repair the loss, it became necessary that the Son of God, whose power is infinite, clothed in the weakness of our flesh, should remove the infinite weight of sin and reconcile us to God and his blood. Now we re-enter the catechism where we left off on necessity of faith in this article of Jesus Christ. The belief and profession of this our redemption which God declared from the beginning are now and always have been necessary to salvation. In the sentence of condemnation pronounced against the human race immediately after the sin of Adam, the hope of redemption was held out in these words, which announced to the devil the loss he was to sustain by man's redemption. I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Genesis 3.15 The same promise God again often confirmed and more distinctly manifested to those chiefly whom he desired to make special objects of his favor, among others to the patriarch Abraham, to whom he often declared this mystery. But more explicitly when, in obedience to his command, Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Because, said God, thou hast done this thing and hast not spared thy only begotten son for my sake, I will bless thee, and I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is by the seashore. Thy seed shall possess the gates of their enemies, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Genesis 22, 16-18 From these words it was easy to infer that he who was to deliver mankind from the ruthless tyranny of Satan was to be descended from Abraham, and that while he was the Son of God, he was to be born of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh. Not long after, to preserve the memory of this promise, God renewed the same covenant with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. When in a vision, Jacob saw a ladder standing on earth and its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending by it, Genesis twenty eight twelve. as the scriptures testify, he also heard the Lord who was leaning on the ladder say to him, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou sleepest, I will give to thee and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. Thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis twenty-eight thirteen to 14 Nor did God cease afterward to excite in the posterity of Abraham and in many others the expectation of a Savior, by renewing the recollection of the same promise. For after the establishment of the Jewish state and religion, it became better known to his people. Types signified and men foretold what and how great blessings the Savior and Redeemer, Christ Jesus, was to bring to mankind. And indeed the prophets, whose minds were illuminated with light from above, foretold the birth of the Son of God, the wondrous works which he wrought while on earth, his doctrine, character, life, death, resurrection, and the other mysterious circumstances regarding him. And all these they announced to the people as graphically as if they were passing before their eyes. With the exception that one has reference to the future and the other to the past, we can discover no difference between the predictions of the prophets and the preaching of the apostles, between the faith of the ancient patriarchs and that of Christians. So you know Archbishop Fulton Sheen, he had a talk that I put on my blog last year at this time, December 2021, right now it's December of 2022, and Fulton Sheen had a talk called Ancient Pagan Prophecies Describing the Savior of the World, and in that, Sheen shows that not only the Jews, but even all nations had a sense that that Savior of the world, the Savior of the world, would come from Israel or Palestine about that time, 2,000 years ago. Sheen writes, and I will link my blog in the show notes, he writes, Turn to pagan testimony. Tacitus, speaking for the ancient Romans, says, People were generally persuaded in the faith of the ancient prophecies that the East was to prevail, and that from Judea was to come the master and ruler of the world. Suetonius, in his account of the life of Vespasian, recounts the Roman tradition thus, it was an old and constant belief throughout the East that by indubitably certain prophecies, the Jews were to attain the highest power. China had the same expectation, but because it was on the other side of the world, it believed that the great wise man would be born in the West. The annals of the Celestial Empire contained the statement, In the 24th year of Chao Wang in the dynasty of Cheo, on the eighth day of the fourth moon, a light appeared in the Southwest which illuminated the king's palace. The monarch, struck by its splendor, interrogated the sages. They showed him books in which this prodigy signified the appearance of the great saint of the West whose religion was to be introduced into their country. The Greeks expected him. For Asselius, in his Prometheus, six centuries before his coming, wrote, Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse until God appears, to accept upon his head the pangs of thy own sins vicarious. And then also at the back of Dr. Taylor Marshall's book, Crucified Rabbi, he, not, he lists not, say, five or ten, but over 300 Old Testament prophecies that were directly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Of course, I won't read all of them here, but if you're listening in real time, it's Advent, so I will close with a few that he lists from Isaiah on the birth of the Savior And of the Messiah, we read that he would be these things. In Isaiah 6, 1, Isaiah foresaw the Messiah's glory, fulfilled in John 12, verse 40 to 41. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, parables fall on deaf ears of Israel, fulfilled in Matthew 13, verses 13 to 15. Isaiah 6, 9 to 12, the people would be blinded to Christ and deaf to his words. Fulfilled in Acts twenty-eight, twenty-three to twenty-nine, Isaiah seven, fourteen. The Messiah would be born of a virgin, fulfilled in Luke chapter one, verse thirty-five. Isaiah seven, fourteen. The Messiah would be called Emmanuel, God with us, fulfilled in Matthew one, eighteen to twenty-three. Isaiah eight, eight. The Messiah would be called Emmanuel, fulfilled also in twenty-eight, twenty of Saint Matthew. Isaiah eight, fourteen. The Messiah would be a stone of stumbling a rock of offense, fulfilled in 1 Peter 2.8. Isaiah 9, 12 the Messiah's ministry would begin in Galilee, fulfilled in Matthew 412 17 Isaiah 9, 6, he would be a human child, fulfilled in Luke 1.31. Isaiah 9, 6 again, he would be the divine Son of God, fulfilled in John 1.14 and 1 Timothy 3.16. Isaiah 9, 6, the Messiah would be the Son of God with power, fulfilled in Romans 1, verse 3 to 4. Isaiah 9, 6 again, he'd be the Wonderful One, seen in Luke 4, 22. And then Isaiah 9, 6 again, the Messiah would be the Counselor, fulfilled in Matthew 13, 54. So that's just about 10 or 15 of the 300 plus prophecies included by Dr. Taylor Marshall in his book, Crucified Rabbi, it's an appendix at the end, and it truly shows, beyond any shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ is the Messiah foretold of the prophets of old. We say in our Father for me, et benedictio Deum Epitentis, Pachi Sephidi et spiritu Santi, Descendet Super Vos, et Semper, Amen.